0: Pray with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us, that we may hear your voice here in this room tonight. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Our scripture lesson this evening comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1 through 12. Shout out, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, announce to my people their rebellion, announce to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God saying, why do we fast but you do not see? Why humble ourselves but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all of your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard." Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise forth in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to live in. The word of God for the people of God. The first time I participated in the practice of giving something up for Lent, I chose the boldest and noblest sacrifice I thought any 12-year-old could possibly come up with. It was the delicacy of my favorite food, pizza. It was a worthy challenge. I knew the temptation of this food during school lunches and at friends' birthday parties was not going to prove easy. But a few weeks into the season, I met my match. My mother decided that we should order pizza for dinner, and I felt panic run through me. My heart was racing. I knew not where I would stand with God if I sinfully indulged in my favorite food. And so, frightened for my future and fearful of going hungry, I protested. I was determined not to remain complacent with our Domino's order that evening when my sacrifice to God was at stake. Now, if it isn't clear yet, I was a dramatic child. (laughs) And so, upon my declaration that no, I will not have any pizza, I was quickly informed that Lent excludes Sundays. My place with God was not at stake, and I could safely eat dinner that evening. All was well. I share this story with you all, not because I believe our salvation is determined by some Lenten sacrifice that we make. That is certainly not the case. But rather, at that moment in time, and now in many other ways, I have placed an immense amount of pressure on the wrong things in part because it's in my nature to care very deeply about small details, but in part because our culture is structured in such a way that we are encouraged to remain so ridiculously busy that we sometimes lose sight of what really matters. I know that I do. Pressure and productivity hold together the fabric of our society, so much so that we get lost in it our minds become distracted, our energies become diverted, when we are bombarded with productivity, the need to always do and work and not simply just be, we can put a lot of stock into things that don't matter as much as we make them out to be. For example, I probably spent a solid 20 minutes while writing liturgy trying to decide whether I should punctuate with a comma or a colon for dramatic effect despite the fact that no one probably noticed that other than me. The poet Jay Hulm describes a very similar experience. He was reading the book of Jonah for the very first time and the translator of the NRSV decided to use the word fish instead of whale to describe the creature that swallowed Jonah. And he was furious. He writes, perhaps that's a microcosm of the way we obsess over tiny parts of God's word at the expense of the bigger picture. Now, I'm not saying that's the type of thing we are all preoccupied with, but I do want to suggest that in general, we are a distracted people. We fly from obligation to obligation, from meeting to meeting. We are so busy that it makes it incredibly tempting or maybe inevitable, to fall prey to worrying about the small details. So when Lent rolls around, as it does every year, it becomes easy to jump at the notion of sacrifice as a way to renew the New Year's resolution we had to put on the back burner or to cut something from our diet that someone once told us might be bad for us to punish ourselves with something and then conclude that it's for God. We implicate God in our self-improvement sometimes by making Lent about something we just don't have time or energy to do the rest of the year. Now I don't want to suggest that giving something up is inherently a bad practice. I certainly do not think that is true. But I do believe that the way we approach Lenten sacrifice, on the whole, requires a little bit of reframing. And so the prophet Isaiah, as we heard this evening, has a little bit to say about focusing on the wrong things. The prophet pulls us in, or perhaps offends us, with a raging criticism. He informs his audience that they have gone astray, saying that they desire to know God, to worship God, to draw near to God. And then he adds this phrase, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness. As if. Isaiah points to the fact that God's people do seek God. This is true, but... It is as if they are doing nothing wrong. They are blinded by their busyness. They're preoccupied with the wrong things. He continues to list where they have gone astray, saying that they fast, but they're still oppressing their workers. They worship God, but they still exploit they have prioritized efficiency in their work at the expense of the marginalized in their community. They do what is best for themselves, even while praising God. They're going through all of their rituals, lying in sackcloth and ashes, making sacrifices to God, and God asks them through the prophet Isaiah, is this what you think I want? And so then we get a vision of what God does want what God's fast is supposed to be. We get this list saying to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to share bread with the hungry and Lord knows we have more than enough and to bring the homeless poor into our very own houses. It's a challenging vision But it is through this embrace of justice that the prophet offers us that God then dazzles us with newness. Upon doing these things, the prophet announces that their light will break forth like the dawn. Ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. Streets will be restored. The people will be like a spring that never runs dry. They will become a flourishing garden. They will have more life. Abundant life comes about in that very moment we let go of the mere performance of faith and instead lean wholeheartedly into the living out of God's values. Isaiah shows the people of Israel and Judah what some of these values are and what will come about when they do. The text opens in an interrogation of a worshiping community and it ends in a vision of restoration Through this movement from judgment to hope, Isaiah demonstrates that ritual and sacrifice are only as meaningful as the actions of love that we are putting behind them. Now, I'm not saying that ritual holds no value. I am here preaching to you in a worship space I love very dearly. But what I want to suggest is that when we put love behind these things, they begin to mean so much more. Giving something up, this sacrifice, for example, can serve as a brilliant reminder that everything we need comes from God. But the prophet Isaiah also suggests that sacrifice needs to be something more than that. The goodness of it comes from the love we put into it, from the material assistance and the spiritual care we put back into the community. Life springs forth in the very moment we let go of the performance, and lean into the task of loving our neighbor with the entirety of our being. This is the sacrifice that God invites us to make, and there is a promise in the text that it will bring about more life. Now, I'm sure many of you weren't anticipating a sermon about life on Ash Wednesday of all days. I wasn't expecting to preach one when I started writing this. We come tonight to be reminded of our mortality after all that we are finite beings, we have endings. But I'm not convinced that this is something we have forgotten over the last few years. Every time we encounter the news, we come face to face with our ashes. There is a major war unfolding in Europe, and we watch it on the screens we carry in our pockets and mount on our walls, and it's unfolding in the streets of very real people as well. Human life is at stake and we watch not knowing what to do on our own. We have survived a raging pandemic that has made the very act of breathing a dangerous thing to do. Life became precious. We have seen the ashes there. We have witnessed one of the largest social justice movements in recent decades in response to the unjust loss of innocent black life. We have seen the ashes there. We have, we have seen our own ashes, the ashes of our friends, of our family, of our world, in just about everything over the last few years, again and again and again. It is no longer news that everything can change in a single moment. We know that all life is fragile. But the peculiar promise of the Lenten season is that it will always end in more life, We begin here, we remember our finitude, we receive the blessing of ashes, acknowledging that we are but beloved dust and to beloved dust we will return. But still, we journey beyond this night as well, carrying the memory of our mortality with us and we will travel up to and on and beyond the cross. We will get to resurrection. But in the meantime, We know that the grace of God is so expansive that even amid the dust, we have the potential for more life, and the prophet Isaiah gave us a glimpse of how to receive it. What I want to propose then is that the fullness of the Lenten journey can and should come from both acknowledging our endings and sharing the abundant life that we already have, knowing that there is a way to receive even more. Through the pursuit of justice, through providing care for the needs of our neighbors, God will grant us abundant life. And so the practice I invite you to partake in this Lent is to lay down any concern with a performative sacrifice, to be gentle with yourself amid the busyness of our lives, and to share the life and love of God to all people in all places. We have been granted a very strange task of survival, of learning and lamenting and loving in a world that's never quite the same as it was the day before. So even in, and especially in our finitude, we are allowed to embrace the possibility of more life and to share that which we already have we can have a different kind of Lent. Pray with me. God of the ashes, remind us that we are made from beloved dust, and to beloved dust we shall return. But in the meantime, grant us more life. Amen.